Welcome, everyone, to episode 39 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and today we're getting back into the true crime. Since it's been a few weeks, we're just jumping right in with the murder of Bianca Devins. But now for a bit of news. I haven't fully decided yet, but I think that I'm going to get back into the Patreon starting in September or October. That should give me enough time to get fully settled in my new house and also be able to get the monthly bonus episode out on an actual schedule instead of willy-nilly like I had been. But let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This first story has details of graphic violence, so listener discretion is advised. It's safe to say that social media is here to stay. Everyone has some kind of social media account, whether it be Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, or Instagram. There's so many different forms of social media out there that everyone is using it. The same goes for Bianca Devins. Bianca Michelle Devins was born on October 2, 2001. She had just graduated from high school and was set to attend Mohawk Valley Community College where she would begin taking classes in psychology. Bianca had also struggled with mental illness for a while, having been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, borderline personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Social media became her refuge where she could escape the isolation that she felt, and she developed a following as an e-girl. It was on social media where she first met Brandon Clark. The two met on Instagram in April of 2019 when he followed her account. They later would meet in person when he attended her high school graduation. He was charming and polite, according to Bianca's mother, Kim. It was obvious to everyone that Brandon had developed romantic feelings for Bianca, but she did not share the same for him. Bianca only saw Brandon as a friend, but that would not stop him from continuing to try. On the night of July 13, 2019, the night before Bianca would be killed, her and Brandon attended the concert of Canadian singer Nicole Dollinganger in New York City. 
It was there that she was set to meet another friend, Alex. Even though Brandon knew that the pair were meeting, he wasn't happy when he saw Bianca and Alex kiss a few times that night. On the way home after the show, Brandon would confront Bianca about the kiss. But again, she had to remind him that they were only friends. It was a long drive home, so Bianca would eventually fall asleep in the back seat. Taking this as his opportunity, Brandon parked his car and he set up a camera on the dashboard. He then woke Bianca up, holding a large knife at his side. Authorities who later watched the video report that it showed Brandon saw Bianca's throat. The police investigation uncovered evidence of a planned attack, including online searches for methods of killing someone. Some of the searches included how to find the carotid artery, how to incapacitate or kill someone, and general searches for choking and hanging. At 6.40 a.m. on July 14, 2019, Brandon Clark posted a photo to his Instagram account. The photo was of a girl in his car. Her neck was cut and she was covered in blood. The look on her face told you that this was not a joke, that this was very real. Moments later, the same account posted to their story, a video driving down a dark road, and it was captioned, here comes hell, it's redemption, right? And looking at his bio, it simply read, 10697 to 71419. Just know that I feel no pain now. The image was shared on Discord and 4chan. This time with the caption, Sorry fuckers, you're going to have to find somebody else to orbit. More images would appear. One captured, captioned, I'm sorry Bianca. Some people didn't think that it was real. After all, who shares something like that on social media? Others took it very seriously and they contacted the police. The police immediately began their search. They didn't have to look for long, as a short time later, a 911 call was received by Clark himself. My name is Brandon. The victim is Bianca Michelle Devins. I'm not going to stay on the phone for long, because I still need to do the suicide part of the murder-suicide. Police were able to determine that the caller was on Post Street in Utica, New York, and upon their arrival, they found a black SUV and a man lying on a tarp that was on the ground beside it. Brown hair could be seen sticking out from beneath the tarp. Once officers approached, Brandon began stabbing himself in the neck with a knife, all while live-streaming and still posting photos online. Bianca's murder has sparked outrage, not only against her killer, but also against the social media giants who allowed her images to be shared and kept up for days. Despite Instagram blacklisting the hashtag YesJuliet and adding the images to a digital fingerprint database, copies of the image continued to be shared, and in some cases, Users who reported the images were told that they did not violate community standards. A 
According to Bianca's mother, the images could still be found on Facebook as late as September. According to Hanny Farid, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, whose research focuses on digital forensics and image analysis, Instagram and other companies had the tools to stop the spread of the images online and that their failure to do so bordered criminal. Hopeful social media influencers took advantage of Bianca's murder. Their actions varied from changing their profile picture to be one of hers, to promising her death pics for followers. Illegitimate fundraising sites also popped up, seeking donations only to take the money and run. In the aftermath of the murder, the media would use Bianca's case to push the narrative of the dangers of meeting people online. Her mother Kim has criticized this idea. Meeting Brandon online wasn't the issue. It wasn't Bianca's social media influence that drove him to kill. It was much deeper than that. While in jail, he wrote a letter to a friend in which he bragged about his actions and explained that he couldn't handle the thought of walking, of her walking out of his life. On July 29th, 2019, Brandon pled not guilty to second degree murder. While in prison, he also received another charge, promoting prison contraband after corrections officers had found a toothbrush in his cell that he had sharpened into a shiv. On February 10th, 2020, Brandon would change his plea to guilty. Four days later, the video that he had recorded of him killing Bianca was announced to the public. The existence of the video damaged his claims of blacking out and forgetting the details of her death. Brandon's sentencing was scheduled to take place on April 7th, but it was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. During this time, he made the decision to withdraw his guilty plea, claiming that his attorney had failed him. His request was denied due to his admission of guilt. On March 16, 2021, Brandon Clark was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Since then, Bianca's mother, Kim, and her attorney, Anthony Bredinsi, called for increased monitoring of social media. In response, Instagram allowed users to block private messages from strangers. The social media giant also promised to share the results of an audit. However, results have yet to be shared. The attorney has requested the Federal Trade Commission to investigate the case for full accountability. On September 21, 2020, the Devins family, along with their attorney, would introduce Bianca's Law. This legislation would require all social media platforms with more than $10 million in revenue and over 100,000 monthly users to establish an office dedicated to identifying and removing violent content that violates a platform's moderation standards. As of June 2022, Bianca's law was passed in New York State. The law establishes criminal and civil penalties for publicly sharing personal images of crime victims. It was passed by Assemblywoman Marianne Buttershawn 
and Senators Joe Griffo and Diane Savino. Wow. This is one of those stories that shows just how horrible people can be. To be so infatuated with someone, to the point that if you can't have them, no one can. It is just so incredibly pathetic and sad. Then you have complete strangers to Bianca, sharing the photos and video of her brutal murder just for likes on Facebook and Instagram. I'd say that the people who did that are just as bad as the guy who murdered that poor girl. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it's about the author's demonic encounter at a slumber party. As always, I'll be reading from the author's perspective. This story takes place right outside of Millington, Tennessee. At the time, I was 12 years old, and this was my very first encounter. My best friend was going to have a slumber party to celebrate her 12th birthday. She had invited me and two other girls, and I was the eldest by a few months. We arrived in the same car, and the party started at about 7 o'clock. We started by eating cake and attempting to play Clue. Then we attempted to play Twister, and her mother went to bed. Her older brother was spending the night at his friend's house, about 20 miles away. Her mother told us to go to my friend's room, so we did. One of her other friends would tell us a ghost story, and then my friend did something that I regret to this day. She told us about her imaginary friend, and I knew that she was only trying to scare the other girls. She said that her friend showed up at midnight and left at 1 o'clock a.m. Then at midnight, it came. It started with me telling them I could tell when bad things were going to happen and that I had seen a warning. They all got scared, but we were thirsty, so they went to the kitchen to get some drinks. Well, when I got halfway down the hall, I remembered that I forgot something in the room and I went back to get it. When I came down the hall, I felt like I was being choked. I was literally unable to breathe. The two other girls were looking at me and they saw my face turning blue. My friend was looking down the hall. When I saw the look on her face, I turned around still gasping for air and crying. I still remember the creature to this day. It was in her brother's room, staring at me with red eyes. It was like a shadow, but it was tall and it had large bat wings. I turned away and I started being able to breathe again. But when I looked at the room again, the creature was gone. We all ran back to the room, shut and locked the door, and we put a chair under the door. 30 minutes later, we heard someone walking down the hall and we called out my friend's mother's name. No one answered, so we called out again. Still no answer. Then, the doorknob jiggled. We all huddled together on my friend's bed, and we never heard the footsteps leave. 
Sure enough, at 1 o'clock a.m., the presence was completely gone. Just to be sure, we didn't sleep at all. Our final story is about the author's haunted house. It was late spring or early summer of 2005 when I knew that something wasn't quite right in my humble little home. I would hear movement in the house, have the feeling of being watched and the occasional touch, all while being alone in the house. I have had a few visitations in the past, but they came and left, and this one seemed to move in and make itself at home. Before we go any farther, let me give you a layout of my little home. My house is actually a 20-something year old house trailer that is just a couple of windstorms away from the recycling center. The layout is pretty standard. As you come in the front door, to the right is a small hallway. On the left is a bathroom and to the end is a small bedroom. To the left is the living room, kitchen, dining room combination. On the far end is a small hallway that leads to the master bedroom with an attached bathroom. The back door is on the right before you reach the bedroom. We have a back porch, but no front porch. The first sighting that I had, I had just finished mowing the front lawn and I came inside to take a break. When I stepped inside, I noticed that my wife wasn't in the living area, so I assumed that she was either in our bedroom or out on the back porch. I did what any good husband does, and I yelled, Honey, where are you? She answered and said that she was on the porch, so I proceeded to join her there. I had taken no more than two or three steps when I saw it. It appeared in the entranceway of the rear hall before you get to the back door. It was a gold-colored, circular-shaped disc about the size of a small saucer. It steadily grew in size until it was the size of a dinner plate and exploded. There wasn't any sound, but it didn't just disappear or fade away. It exploded. It lasted a minute, maybe two, and it was over. I wasn't scared, just kind of stunned. I told the wife what had just happened. Of course she believed me and we discussed what it could have been. We, maybe I should say I, didn't arrive at any answers and that left me scratching my head, trying to figure this thing out. I didn't have long to wait because the answer lied just around the corner. About a month or so later, I was on the back porch tinkering with my weed eater and the missus was at her sister's house. I stepped inside to get another cup of coffee, and as I looked toward the living room, I saw her. There standing in front of the television set was a pretty little girl. She looked to be eight or nine years old, with shoulder-length, slightly curly brown hair. She was wearing a plain blue dress that came down past her knees, but not quite to her ankles. She had her head bowed, like she was looking at the floor, or like a child does when they think that they're in trouble. I couldn't see her face, so I said, hello, and she promptly disappeared. I still wasn't scared, 
but I was more than just stunned. I was intrigued, and I wanted answers. You might say that it was this experience that brought me to this site, searching for answers. The wife and I discussed both of these incidents at length many times. One night, after I truly accepted her gift, she's a non-practicing empathetic medium, as being real. She looks at me and says, Abigail. I guess I looked at her like I was confused, and she said, Her name is Abigail, and she lived here. If you're anything like me, you're thinking, What the heck? Why did that end so abruptly? I'd like to know the same thing. The, the user that shared the story doesn't appear to be on the website anymore. It looked like when I dis- when I found the story, I was going to be able to get maybe a second part of it, but it's now gone from the website and I can't seem to find it. If I do, I will update it in a future episode because I I don't like cliffhangers like that. I need closure. So, that's just how that story's going to end for right now. But, with all that, that is going to do it for today's episode. I do hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, minus the, uh, the hole there at the end. If you did, make sure to rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really does help others find this podcast. Also, make sure to join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. And I am down to my absolute last few shirts on OhioUnsolved.com. So if you've been holding out on buying one, now is the time to grab one before they're gone forever. Once again, thank you all for listening. And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.